Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I would like to see a show of hands. Nothing can see. Welcome back from your weekend. Uh, we are going to talk about a series of things, most of which I think are intellectually conjoined. But we'll find out, too. I mean, the only way to know, really, is to venture out into the woods. We're going to begin uh, with a, a remarkable column. You know, sometimes you read somebody's column, you think, oh, he's talking to me. This is exactly what I'm trying to wrap my mind around from a different angle. Roger Cohen often uh, does that for me anyway, but op-ed columnist for the uh, New York Times and author of The Girl from Human Street, Ghosts of Memory uh, in a Jewish Family. Uh, he wrote uh, over the weekend about the weightlessness of words in a very specific way. So first of all, welcome back to our show. Thank you, Cohen. And, and so set this up for people who haven't read the column. Uh, it begins uh, with a kind of a, well, not just unusual, but fairly bizarre political commercial. That's right. Um, well, I arrived in Israel about um, a week ago, and one of the first things I heard was about this strange political ad from the right-wing justice minister, who's a rising star of Israeli politics. People talk about her as a possible future prime minister, whose name is Ayelet Shaked. And this ad features fascism, but fascism in the ad is a perfume. And uh, it's um, pretty strange, but also troubling, compelling viewing. Uh, essentially, just to go through it quickly, uh, she appears um, looking pretty sultry, uh, runs a hand through her hair, uh, and then we see this um, flaxen of perfume called fascism. And the narration goes through various things she's been doing as justice minister, essentially trying to uh, restrain the Supreme Court, a foundation of Israeli democracy, uh, calling it a kind of liberal elite super government, uh, goes through all these things against um, the background of her holding the perfume. Then she sprays the perfume, suddenly turns to a kind of gravelly Israeli voice and says, hmm smells like democracy to me. And uh, that's it. Now, what she's trying to do uh, is say, well, you liberals, you call me a fascist, but there's nothing undemocratic about what I'm doing. It's a pretty curious way to do that. It is, and it, it feels, I don't know, this is just me talking, um, but it feels as though what she's done, and I think we see a lot of this, is to take the word and the concept of fascism uh, like a boot and upend it and shake it uh, until it empties out of whatever was in it. Uh, and then at, <laughs> at that point, 
you are free to fill the boot back up with whatever you want. I mean, there's a sense in which, I mean, I feel like we internationally are having a crisis, not just of politics, but of semiotics. And this is like the semiotics and meaning. Yeah. Uh, Meaning. What do words mean? What does it mean when a politician says something? What does it mean when an Israeli politician, we're talking about Israel, after all, uh, takes the word fascism, turns it into a perfume, uses it in this completely weightless way, completely stripped of any historical context. And what is context? It is that fascism was seductive, as some perfumes are. It did make millions of Europeans swoon. It then led to the rise uh, of governments uh, in Germany, uh, the Nazis, um, the fascist party in Italy. And that in turn, of course, led to the mass murder, the industrialized mass murder of six million Jews. Uh, After the war, three years later, the modern state of Israel was born. So when an Israeli does this, it seems to me to be particularly representative of what you were just talking about, Colin, this this, um, inversion of everything, this weightlessness of everything. Um, Our president um, hurling this label of fake news Uh, Of course, at my newspaper, at a lot of other good media outlets, when in fact, what's fake, what's false, what's a lie, uh, is more often than not emanating from the Oval Office, not from the offices of the New York Times. And, and, you know, if, if this had sort of been, I don't know, more of an enlightenment-driven argument. Let's say that she wanted to make this argument, and so she, she makes a commercial in which she says, basically, you know, a lot of people call this fascism. Let me show you why it's democracy and democracy at its best. You know, th- there's a commercial that you could make there. Uh, I, we could debate whether it would be more or less insidious, uh, but it would be a commercial that at least proceeded from some kind of argument that either could be refuted or embraced. It seems to me that one of the keys to this commercial is it doesn't really make a linear argument. No, it makes no linear argument. It's pure uh, symbolism. Uh, It gives you a frisson uh, because, uh, well, Shaquette is an attractive woman. She's, She's brandishing something called fascism. She's doing it in a rather sensual way. And then she leaps to this political argument that doesn't smell like fascism to me, smells like democracy. Uh, But it's something that's not really making, as you just said, any kind of rational argument. It's playing with emotion. And in fact, she is playing with the kinds, exactly the kinds of things in, in her role as minister and what she's done. She's playing with exactly the kinds of things that fascism did, which among them was to eviscerate an independent judiciary and destroy one in Nazi Germany. And we could, as I mentioned the column, have a situation in Israel where uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is facing, who is, who is seeking a fifth term as Israeli prime minister and is in facing charges of bribery and fraud and breach of trust and all kinds of things, where if he wins, he could try to make it a condition of parties joining his coalition uh, that the Knesset, the parliament, uh, pass a law that would prohibit the prosecution of an elected official, i.e. of him. And then 
you could find that the Supreme Court's power to declare a move like that unconstitutional uh, would simply have been overturned by what Shaked is trying to do in terms of destroying or vastly weakening the powers uh, of the Supreme Court in Israel. And we see in the United States uh, a very similar attack on an independent judiciary from the president sometimes. And it's exactly the playbook of leaders in places like Hungary and Poland that have been laying out a model of what they like to call illiberal democracy. Well, and let's throw Brazil in now, too, although that's Brazil, not, of course. Yeah, yeah Bolsonaro. What yeah. Bolsonaro's done there. Once again, you know, the reading reading your column, I flashed to the, the John Lee Anderson piece about Bolsonaro in The New Yorker, where it, it just yeah. is clear that he's using language and imagery in a way that once again has kind of— hacked away at the umbilicus that connects a word to its meaning because yeah. you wouldn't be able to use the words. I mean, he talks about, you know, one of his female opponents is not worthy of being raped. He says a policeman yeah. has never killed anybody, never killed anybody, is not a real mm-hmm. policeman. These are things that ultimately mm-hmm. they should be disqualifiers and instead they're mm-hmm. qualifiers, which means something's going on with language and meaning. Yeah, and I think one of the things that Trump gets, and, and, and after all, he came from the world of entertainment, he came from the world of TV, he gets the power of repetition. He understands absolutely the power of repetition. Uh, he repeats slurs about his opponents, and we're going to see that in the next campaign. Uh, he repeats the phrase fake news to the point as I travel around the world, I hear it every, oh, you're a journalist, you do fake news. You know, it's become standard fare. Um, and you hear alarming phrases like um, fact-based journalism. I'm sorry, there is no other kind. Mm-hmm. Fact-based journalism, what is that? But people feel obliged to say it because there is this insidious process taking place where things that were previously regarded as, as beyond the pale or simply manifest nonsense um, are now... Uh, accepted. And to me, one of the most flagrant examples of this in the United States is what's happened to the word truth. Um, It is a fact today that tens of millions of Americans, and I've met them in places like Indiana, Kentucky, there are some in New York, not many, but believe that our president is the most honest president we've ever had, period. Um, Now, for people who believe that an honest statement is one that conforms to the facts, conforms to truth, that's a very alarming view. But no, their view is, well, he tells it like it is, in quotes, and he does what he said he would do on the campaign trail, i.e. in Israel, move the embassy uh, to Jerusalem, get out of the Paris Climate Accords, uh, build a wall at the border, um, you name it. So we have lost Uh, any national consensus on what the word truth means. And that, I would submit, is dangerous. I think one of the uh, people who predicted this was Neil Postman years ago, amusing ourselves to death. And that notion that uh, we could very easily conflate the appearance of authenticity with truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so Trump plays as authentic. Uh, If you watch his his Grand Rapids speech from over the weekend, the one thing the one thing that clearly isn't is some carefully vetted, focus grouped, handled set of words prepared (laughs) for him by somebody else. It is, you know, it's what psychiatrists call primary process. It's just he's just saying 
things mm-hmm. that come into his head as they come into mm-hmm. his head. And, mm-hmm. and that strikes most people as authentic. Now, there's a distinction to be made between authentic and true. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, similarly in that um, to our, more than to our rambling uh, speech that he made to CPAC a couple of weeks <laughs> ago, Listen, I've seen Chavez in Caracas make a four-hour speech. Uh, you know, Hitler made a multi-hour-long big speech to the Reichstag in uh, 1939. Uh, nobody who doesn't have a serious narcissistic disorder uh, 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 and, um, uh, I would say, strong authoritarian tendencies uh, makes a speech that goes on for more than two hours. But anyway, in that speech, at one Early on, he says, you know, okay, I'm going off script now. I mean, he had a written speech, but I'm going off script now. And actually, uh, I'm paraphrasing here. Actually, you know, I'm in the White House because I went off script. You know, I won because I went off script. And, um, and uh, he has very sharp, barrel almost, you know, antenna for, for what people in a very politically correct age you know, w- want to hear. The, the, he, he releases... Uh, enables them to express, whether on Twitter or on social media or just to their friends, um, things that perhaps they had repressed. And, uh, and this is what Trump does. Right. And, and let's give the devil his due and not deny him that cunning. He has an incredible facility with uh, one of the ones that I was thinking of over the last couple of days. Right after he got into office, clearly some White House lawyer or somebody said to him words to the effect that the way the office is constructed, the way the Constitution understands the office, it may be the case that nothing that the president does would automatically be defined or could be defined as a crime, as an indictable yeah. crime. The way that he repeated it to the public was the president can't commit a crime and he would say that over again the president can't commit can't commit a crime as though this were some kind of kantian statement you know that it's like it is like impossible within the laws of the universe for the president Mm -hmm. to commit a crime he's really good at that kind of thing but roger i find myself wondering most of these guys maybe maybe netanyahu gets uh, a, a special category most of these guys don't seem smart enough really to invent this system this system looks like a bunch of birdhouses that they moved into and i just sort of wonder who built these birdhouses how, how did we get where i feel as though we probably and you suggest this in your column that we probably have some complicity in all this well, yeah, sad to say, Colin, I think the birdhouses are built into human nature. Uh, the, uh, you know, the desire when uh, things are difficult to find a scapegoat, uh, the, uh, the uh, instinct at times, um, or the attraction, let's say, at times of a strong, you know, kind of authoritarian leader, uh, to whom you can uh, submit your your will, abdicate abdicate your will, uh, in effect. Um, uh, you know, these are things that um, I think uh, uh, are present. You know, and if the the times are such that uh, there's a feeling among people that they've lost control, uh, that the future is not going to be better for their kids. Um, uh, that uh, the metropole, so to speak, the big cities, its culture has become very foreign and alien. And, and all these things, I think, uh, Donald Trump seized on. But you make a very good point. I, 
you know, one of the things that we've been illustrating it over, <laughs> in a way, over the last you know, 10, 15 minutes, the, the obsession with our president tends to blind the fact that, in fact, he holds up a great big mirror to American society. He would not be in the White House if he had not become the expression of elements in our culture that exist and exist way beyond just his support or his hardline core support. I mean, think of things like um, individualism, egocentricity, the almost you know, solipsistic state of many people with their smartphones. Uh, it's that we're in a very fractured, uh, sometimes lonely, um, and very individualistic uh, culture, uh, where community, I think, uh, and the bonds of American society have, have been weakened. So I don't think Trump is, and this is what, an additional thing that makes him dangerous. I don't think, uh, I don't think he is some weird phenomenon. I think he is a phenomenon that grew out of what American society uh, has become. That's not to say that there aren't tens of millions of Americans who are appalled by this presidency, who believe in words like dignity and decency and honesty um, and generosity and, and care. You know that. Uh, have traditionally been associated um, you know, with the highest office in the land and are appalled to see all this being sullied and smirched day after day. Nevertheless, I think the phenomenon is much deeper and broader than some people think. All right, we have just a few minutes left. I don't want to use up your day, but I, I'm, yeah. going, I'm going to uh, make my big reach uh, here, and you can just yeah. have a bucket of cold water ready to throw yeah. at me, okay? What I, I find myself wondering whether one of the other things that happened was that the human, all the words that you just talked about, all those abstractions, important abstractions that you just talked about, they have to attach themselves to uh, a bulwark of the humanities. And there's yeah. a way in which, starting in the latter 20th century, not to sound like some University of Chicago conservative intellectual, you know, things got very complicated and relativistic and not to blame everything on Foucault and, and Derrida. And, but there was a way in which there was a central argument being made about the humanities, which is they're much more complicated than the kind of absolutes that you, you've been dealing with. You have to understand relativism and perspective and stuff like that. And I wonder if we kind of maxed out that to a point where, you know, Trump and people like that are sort of an obvious reaction to it. Oh, yeah, you think it's complicated? It's not that complicated. I'll tell you exactly how simple it is. Yeah, I think uh, there's there's a lot in that, Colin, actually. I think, uh, uh, you know, liberals um, you know, tying themselves in knots over various arguments, be they about identity or gender or, or a whole range of other subjects, every subject, if you like, while... And along comes a guy who just said, actually, it's damn simple. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to close the border. Um, I don't particularly like Muslims. Uh, you know, outrageous things. Um, and uh, I think our representative democracy uh, was you know, mediated through, through various institutions that were supposed to uphold rule of law, civic discourse, and so on. And, and the simplifiers now uh, have a very powerful means to get their message across, a very unfiltered means, a totally unfiltered means. And that's to say, Twitter, social media, uh, you know, will we go back after Donald Trump to a president who doesn't tweet? I don't know. But um, 
this exhaustion with complication that you just described happened to coincide with a technology that was the most powerful means to eliminate complication, to, to make things very direct and simple uh, that has ever been provided to human beings. And what I think we're seeing um, is some kind of transition, and we don't know what its outcome will be, you know, from representative democracy to direct democracy. And for now, this direct democracy looks, looks pretty worrying. The premium is on, is on hatefulness. And um, you know, institutions like a free press, uh, described by the president as enemies of the people, a phrase of pure totalitarian pedigree, or what I described at the beginning is going on with the Israeli Supreme Court, these mediating institutions are just uh, you know, under assault from, quote, the will of the people, unquote. And uh, we know what the mob can produce from the first half of the 20th century. So I don't want to sound too alarmist, but um, there are things going on that uh, are worrying. We're in a moment of transition. Um, the, the sort of post-45 world order, I think, is, um, you know, that's over. Uh, what is going to take its place um, is not clear. And you only have to look at Brexit and the complete mess there to see what pleb plebiscitary democracy, uh, you know, driven by fake news, uh, that phrase again, can produce. Well, Roger Cohen, I don't think we solved anything. On the other hand... No, sorry, that was a very rambling answer. No, I loved it. No, I, I, this, <laughs> very cogent it, question. It, but, Roger, yeah. it was, to me, it was a tonic. It was the tonic I needed. All right, uh, op-ed columnist for The New York Times, author of uh, The Girl from Human Street, Ghosts of Memory in a Jewish Family. Roger Cohen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now we're going to, I think, proceed in an orderly fashion towards one of the fringes of the, of the phenomenon that we were just talking about. So what happens when one of these creatures who's born in that strange, twisted fold where truth and falsehood blur, what happens when one of those creatures is called to account for himself? And of course, I'm talking about Alex Jones. You'll find out. Yes, I think this next uh, segment will fit well together with the preceding segment. And that's what we want segments to do, right? So, yes, we're going to talk about Alex Jones. In a better world, Alex Jones just wouldn't matter. But that, unfortunately, I guess this is not a better world. Alex Jones and his Infowars uh, seem to be capable of distorting public opinion, uh, influencing possibly the president of the United States, and hurting people. Uh, and it is this sort of this latter quality that we're going to talk about and what happens when he gets called on the carpet about it, uh, joining us uh, to do that and to uh, talk in, in particular about the you know, recent uh, depositions in a defamation suit is Charlie Warzel, uh, opinion writer at large for the New York Times, sort of like the New York Times radio hour today. But that's that's good. I think that's a that's a good thing. Uh, Charlie, uh, are you with us? I'm here. So, um, Alex Jones, uh, I guess I don't really have to explain who Alex Jones is, but maybe if I, if I do, he is, even by the standards of conspiracy-orienting, fear-mongering, hate-mongering, uh, extremist uh, media, he's like 
he's like something that crawled out from under that rock. Like they didn't let him on top of that rock. So um, InfoWars obviously become, become kind of fam- famous. Um, and it's pretty difficult to do very much about Alex Jones because we have a constitution that guarantees a free press and that guarantees free speech. What, what, we, what you've encountered here and what you've been covering is one of the rare exceptions to that reality. So what's going on with Alex Jones right now? Well, so Alex Jones is currently embroiled in a, uh, pick your, (laughs) the way you want to describe it, a parade of lawsuits, I think is what I said, but uh, uh, it's a a series of lawsuits, defamation lawsuits uh, from parents of um, uh, the children who were slain in uh, the Sandy Hook uh, shooting back um, many years ago now. Uh, And Alex Jones has long said that uh, this he's had numerous sort of conspiratorial takes on the Sandy Hook massacre that it was potentially a false flag operation uh, conducted by the government in, in a long ploy to sort of grab Americans' guns and change gun laws. Uh, that it was staged. He's he's. Um, in, enlisted the help of numerous sort of online vigilante investigators to uh, try to. Uh, I don't want to use the word harass explicitly, but to to look into the families and uh, which has led to harassment um, of the families of the victims. And so uh, they've taken legal action, and and Jones has been uh, deposed in this lawsuit. Um, and the deposition, which is a little over three and a half hours was posted on Friday afternoon to YouTube, uh, by, uh, uh, one of, one of the legal teams. And it is, it is a incredibly compelling, uh, document that, that really shows Alex Jones in a way that, uh, that the public has never seen him before. He's, he's subdued. He's sort of unable to be in control. And, uh, and as a result, um, you know, it it is it is a a way to see this uh, this shock jock that that uh, is unfamiliar to many people. All right. Well, let's hear a little bit. Yes, this this uh, deposition is uh, up on YouTube, uh, as Charlie says. It's uh, there for you to pick through as you see fit. Here's a little bit about what it would sound like. I want to ask you about photos of the children. So I'm going to play a, a video clip about something you said about photos of the children. This is something you said on September 25th, 2014. Can you play photos of children? And then photos of kids that are still alive, they said died. I mean, they think we're so dumb that it's, it's, it's really hidden in plain view. Mr. Jones, you can admit that that statement was absolute nonsense. There are not photos of children who died who are actually still alive. That's not a that is an out-of-context clip. I, I can't even respond to something like that. You said it, though, didn't you? I don't know what it's in context to. Is there a good context to that, Mr. Jones? That I, people's children who are dead, there's actually photos of them still alive? Can you give me the good context? There's no way. There's no way to respond. I don't know what it is. I know what it is. It's a video of you saying that there are photos of children who died who are still alive. And I'm asking you... That's absolute nonsense, isn't it, Mr. Jones? Objection as to form. No, it's no, it's not. I don't know the context of that video. So, uh, Charlie, I mean, watching some of these deposition tapes, it is a little bit like watching the lawyers try to nail, nail Jello to the wall. I mean, Jones is slippery. He'll claim something's a media matters clip that's been edited in a way to make him look as bad as possible. Uh, but on the other hand, as you're suggesting, a lot of the bluster anyway has gone out of him, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I, so I am somebody who's who's watched probably in my reporting on on the sort of conspiracy fringes, and, and Alex Jones specifically watched hundreds of hours of his show. Uh, I've spent uh, a lot of time sort of trying to chase him around. I've been uh, I've had panels that I've done at uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I've had panels that I've done at uh, festivals interrupted by him with a bullhorn. He is somebody who y- you cannot have a conversation with. You cannot have any um, – y- you never even get the floor in the conversation. It's not just simply that it's not a, a, a good back and forth. It's that you never get the chance to speak. He hijacks every single instance of conversation uh, and sort of filibusters in his own way. Uh, he talks over. He – you know, floods the zone with all kinds of different theories. He goes a mile a minute. It's impossible to keep up with him, uh, and 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 he has no you know respect or or regard for whoever he's in a, a a possible dialogue with. And so, what's so fascinating about this document, as opposed to all of that, is he can't really do that. He's you know he has to answer in such a way as as to not have them object as non-responsive. And even though he's not you know, confessing anything grand uh, in these in in these depositions, you you get to see someone badger him as a result. You get to see him be out of control, of not being able to have the narrative. You know, when they ask him a question and he plays dumb, then they get to play the lawyers play a video clip that shows, um, you know, that he was either lying or misrepresenting himself in some way. And, and and it's really, I mean, it's remarkable in that way. No, no one's really been able to do that before to him. Um, uh, you know, the, if there was sort of an epic moment, it, it might have been when he basically claimed that he was he had suffered from a psychosis at one point, that he was in the grip uh, of some delusion that he was not able to control that made him see conspiracies. Yeah, this is, I mean, it seems like, so the, the last time that Alex Jones was on trial uh, in any capacity was a 2017 custody case uh, with his wife, child custody case. Uh, and at that point, one of the uh, one of the defenses that he gave um, for not bringing his InfoWars clips into the courtroom was that, uh, that it was all sort of performance art to some degree. Uh, so that was the big revelation of, of that, of that one. This psychosis thing seems to be sort of akin to that, the, the big, um, defense, uh, if you will, uh, Alex walked back that 2017 performance art comment, uh, numerous times after it became clear that, you know, if that was a threat to his audience in some way. And I, I think we're going to see the same thing likely happen here where he's going to say, Oh no, that was taken out of context. That was, uh, you know, I, what I was, what I was trying to say was I was young and I was naive. And, uh, he's going to walk that back, I think, because, uh, you know, a big threat to Alex for his listeners, is for people to think that in any way that he's a non-believer in this. So I, you know, I, I'm not so sure that 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 revelation shows anything more than he's willing to say anything he needs to say to weasel out of the situation. Now he's you know been sort of banned or scrubbed off certain social media sites. Uh, he's got these lawsuits uh, coming at him. But I don't know how much of an existential threat is there still to Alex Jones Nation. It seems to me he's got what. Five million or so people who who spend time with him and take him somewhat seriously. I don't know what you could or would do to ultimately change that. And it might even be the case that some of these things he can ultimately convert into fuel as opposed to the dissipation of his powers. 
You know, that might be true. Uh, it's really hard to tell uh, where this is, where this is going to go down, down the, which road. But what I will say about Alex is the reason, one of the ways he stands out is uh, he makes most of his money, uh, if not um, nearly all of his revenue selling uh, these supplements that, that he markets towards his, uh, towards his viewers uh, on his store. There's sort of, they're, they're, um, they're psycho or they're, they're, um, nootropic brain pills and things like that and vitamins and uh and sort of tonics and mixtures and uh he makes a lot of money off of these Mm -hmm. and it sort of insulates him from you know that pressure that someone like say you know bill o'reilly or tucker carlson might get when people call for an advertiser boycott It, it, it insulates him greatly but uh this trial uh threatens that to some degree, not only because of the, you know, the restitution he might have to pay to numerous families. And, you know, there's a possibility that it could, you know, severely drain his finances. But the other thing is that, uh, you know, he's been, he's been called to provide uh, his finances to the court and, and and his finances, you know, could become a part of, of, of real public record in a granular way. We might see how he makes this money. It's possible that, you know, uh, different uh, government organizations might scrutinize some of that, uh, including, you know, his supplement business. I think what we're seeing is these lawsuits are exposing him in a way that he's never had to be exposed before. And I think uh, if there is any um, chance that he will face consequences, it's going to happen through this. Right. To me, maybe it kind of alters the calculus of being Alex Jones. You know, I mean, they one theory, I don't know, I'm not necessarily saying people should embrace this theory in their own lives, but one theory about what happens if you encounter, say, a black bear in your neighborhood or somewhere is that you you want to seem a little bit bigger. You want to seem like the bear is still basically making kind of a cost-benefit analysis about approaching you versus not approaching you. And in a way, the Newtown families, the Sandy Hook families, are kind of doing the same thing, right? But on the one hand, Alex typically gets rewarded for the most outlandish tripwire-kicking claims that he could possibly make. He has very little disincentive not to make that kind of claim. It's his bread and butter. It's what makes the engine go. It what provides the eyeballs that then buy the supplements. So in a way, to have a group of motivated plaintiffs who are saying, well, no, I'm actually going to make this a little bit more difficult for you. Uh, and, and you're you're going to think twice before you say certain things because there actually are consequences in addition to the benefits that you perceive. I, I just, I guess I just sort of wonder, I mean, we don't really know yet, right, Charlie, whether or not that works. Right. We don't know that. But I think you make a great point, which is that the the conspiracy theory ecosystem and, and, and even I'll go a tiny step further and say a lot of the sort of shock jock pro-Trump media ecosystem, um, it's it's asymmetric warfare. You know, there's a lot like Alex Jones sort of disguises what he does uh, in journalism. You know, he always says, I have my sources, I have this, that. If you look at his set, you know, it's almost like a CNN set. It, it, it's well done. It looks like he's an authoritative journalistic force. But in reality, he's not playing on the same playing field. You know, there are there is no Infowars standards and practices. There are no... Um, you know, he's allowed to toss out specious claims and, and, and polarizing statements without fearing that he'll either lose his job or that there will be any real retribution. And that 
that asymmetric balance between that and, and a regular media outlet, uh, which does have to deal with with all of that, with libel, with all, defamation, with all sorts of things. This lawsuit is sort of trying to level that playing field. It's trying for the first time to bring some consequences to, you know, libelous speech or or, or harassing speech if uh, on behalf of him. And I think that that you know, has the potential to set a really fascinating precedent. Uh, obviously, we don't want to, you know, take curtail the speech of people, but if it is defamatory, if it is, uh, you know, causing a real world harm to people, um, you know, that that is that that is something that I, that I think, you know, could really change the way that some of these shock jocks work. I'll just quickly tell a story. I used to be sort of the House liberal at an otherwise conservative commercial CBS-owned radio station that had Rush Limbaugh and stuff like that on the air. In fact, Rush Limbaugh's show preceded my own. And he would sometimes say similar kinds of things, things that had no basis in fact, things that seemed kind of you know, borderline defamatory, things that in, in any kind of normal journalistic e- ecosystem you couldn't say, you wouldn't say if you couldn't prove. And every once in a while I would just hear one in the hallway and I would look at the program director and I would say, well, we got to do something and we'd probably run a correction or something. And they would just laugh at me <laughs> because none of it worked that way. None of it, it, it wasn't answerable to any of those kinds of standards unless somebody made it answerable. And Charlie, one thing that I do think is when this period of history, the last, say, four years of history, uh, has is can be studied, I do think that people are going to look at the kids from Parkland and these parents from Sandy Hook and they're going to say, you know, this might actually have been the birth of a new kind of activism. A group of people who said, you know what? We First of all, we have access to some of the same media tools and social media tools as some of the people who are bothering us right now or causing harm to us. And, and if we're effective in using them, if we're smart and judicious about using them, we don't have to be passive all the time. And, and I do see some commonality between what's happening to Jones right now and, of course, Sandy Hook's also doing some stuff about uh, liability, firearms, and stuff like that, too. And, and the Parkland, the young Parkland people who, who just said, no, we don't have to take this. I think that's really true. I think that, that there is a level of, uh, of being fed up here and, 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 and really just an idea that there, that there need to be consequences for, for truly reckless and, and harmful speech. Uh, you know, I, I think we looked at, you know, online harassment back in, let's say, you know, the late aughts and early 2010s as almost uh, not quaint, but we looked at it as, oh, that's a problem for the Internet. Right. Uh, that is something s- sort of small. The consequences are low and we can kind of laugh it off or ignore it. Don't feed the trolls, people said. Uh, that was kind of the claim. And now we see that there is a lot of real world harm that can be done and that it adds up and people are fed up with it. So they're looking at these tech platforms and saying, this is, you know, this is, this can't stand. We need change. Uh, Same thing with, you know, the way the Parkland teens reacted to mass shootings. Like this isn't something we can brush aside anymore. We refuse to let this be the status quo. And I think we're seeing that with certain realm, uh, certain parts of misinformation, conspiracy theories, we're seeing the harm in the real world to real people. And I think that, you know, all it really takes or can take is, a, an interested, motivated party to stand up and say, we're, we're not going to we're not going to sit by and let this happen. There's going to be consequences. All right. Charlie Warzel, uh, opinion writer at large for The New York Times. Thank you so much for doing this with us. We're going to take a break. 
I'm going to give you the phone number right now, though, because the final segment of the show today will be yours. Uh, to It'll be your playground, as Madonna would say. Uh, and you can call 860-275-7266. If you want to respond to anything you've heard so far in my conversation with Roger Cohen or my conversation with Charlie Warzel or say things about uh, horrible, uh, horrible Alex Jones. Um, but there's other things to talk about as well. We almost did a Joe Biden segment today. And I don't know. I decided not to. I'll explain why maybe on the other side. But I, I'm not opposed to talking about Joe Biden here. 860-275-7266. You tell me what we're going to talk about. 860-275-7266. Use in the truth if you can tell a lie sometimes. What's the use in the truth if you can tell a lie? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from me, Kyone Wolf. And the part of Bill Curry was played by Glenn Beck. On tomorrow's show, a shocking story about parents who swap out their parental rights to get treatment for their kids. Now, back to Colin. Yeah, this is going to be a pretty serious show uh, tomorrow, but I think, uh, you're, well, I'm glad we're doing it. I'm glad Betsy Kaplan, uh, our senior producer, has it well in hand. All right, so I said uh, open phone lines. There are open phone lines. 860. Two seven five seven two six six, and let's go to Adam. Adam in New Milford. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? All right. First off, I want to say I hope your knee's been better. My father went through the same thing, and uh, one of his knee going through surgery actually helped the other one. So I hope kind of the same thing is going for you. Well, it's a long story. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> okay. Um, so my my comment last question is. Um, I'm not as worried about Alex Jones as I am of the 5 million people who follow him. So my question is, do you think something like a baloney detection kit, something Carl Sagan talked about in the 80s and 90s, a way to tell truth from fiction and science from just plain nonsense, should be taught at a younger age so that maybe people who grow up with the Internet and with a lot of information at their fingertips that could be real or fake or somewhere in between maybe have a better way of parsing the information and so maybe you know we also need to look at raising children so that they kind of learn at a young age how to be logical and how to maybe uh, avoid being dragged into conspiracy theories altogether well i mean obviously from your lips to god's ears but i mean i also think and and we should say media literacy and and, and other names for exactly what you're describing. Uh, there's an incredible vogue for that right now, not only here in the United States, but really all over the world now. Uh, it is now being recognized that that part of education is going to be learning exactly those kinds of discernments. Um, that said, uh, unfortunately, the human race you know, I mean, it has certain appetites kind of wired into it that I think are going to be very difficult to eradicate. And so, I mean, yes, I think you can teach people how to look at something and ask a few relevant questions to it. And you can even teach people how to have. Well, I mean, OK, I'll just take an extra second in here and say so. I was started out as a newspaper reporter in 1976 and one thing I picked up from a city editor one time was this thing that I still think about it all the time. It's called the three-minute mile rule. And what it is is if somebody shows up here in the newsroom and says he just ran, he can run the mile in three minutes, um, he probably can't. 
Uh, I mean, you're free to spend the afternoon, go down to the high school with a stopwatch and time him at the track and stuff like that. But chances are he can't run the mile in three minutes. And you have to do a kind of triage with information. If you treat every single claim as worthy of the same amount of investigation, uh, verification, or disproval, uh, you're going to waste a lot of time. Now, I mean, the problem with that rule is it's a heuristic rule. From time to time, you'll miss like the greatest story ever because you'll think it's another guy claiming to run the three-minute mile. But there are things like that that you can teach people. But I, I don't know that, you know, that Alex Jones is appealing to something very, very different, which is the incredible desire that people have to 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 believe that things have been concealed from them. There is a thrill associated with the idea that things have been concealed and they are now being revealed to you. And I don't know. I don't know whether it's going to be all that easy to get rid uh, of that. I mean, the, the other thing, I'll say one quick, quick thing about that, though. Because it's something that um, my friend Humphrey Tonkin, the former president of the University of Hartford, said recently, at least in my presence, and it stayed with us, stayed with me, which is that we are spending a tremendous amount of time right now fact-checking things that we think are not true. So things get said, they're not true, we fact-check them, we try to provide an accurate, corrected version of reality. Which, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we kind of have to do that. That's the, the game we're in. But Humphrey, he just kind of planted this as food for thought. I'm going to plant it with you as food for thought. He said, maybe we're giving short shrift to truths. You know, maybe we should spend more time on, instead of spending all of our time picking apart lies, we should spend some of our time on the affirmation of truths, the thing that, things that we really know at some kind of Keatsian level to be true. Uh, that we can almost lose sight of that. We're spending so much time playing whack-a-mole uh, with guys like Alex Jones. So it's, you know, it's another way to think about this whole problem. Anyway, let's see. Um, let's, well, we have two Daves or a Dave and a Dave. Oh, I'll go to Dave. Dave in, uh, oops, I didn't do it. Uh, I'll go to Dave in North Brantford. Hi, Dave. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. How are you? Okay. Good. Um so I get to listen to your show infrequently uh, when, when work and my schedule permits. Uh, one thing I, I'm struck by by listening to you when I do is, there, to me, and, and I guess I would describe myself as a, as a moderate. I kind of I can go both ways on the political spectrum depending on the on the uh, topic. Um, but what, what I'm struck with with your guests and some of your statements is. You, you seem to lend credence to people like Trump when they claim that there's a liberal media bias. You, there, I never seem to hear anyone that, I don't want to say espouses, but maybe supports a more conservative view or a more, uh, for lack of a better term, Trumpian view when you have these interviews. And I fear that, that what that does is that plays into the claims of a liberal media bias and when people like Trump or um, I didn't really get to hear much of the Alex Jones uh, segment. I don't really uh, care much about him, but people like that, when they make these claims, there's, you're sort of giving them the kernel of truth by not fleshing out 
maybe some uh, having a guest. Well, that, first of all, I, 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 so I hear the point you're making. I just in the interest of time, I don't know. We've had Milo Yiannopoulos on. Is that conservative enough for you? We had Jordan Peterson on. Is that conservative enough for you? <laughs> uh, we're not. I'm certainly not afraid of talking to conservatives, and I'm well, certainly also not. I'm, my point was that it, it's skewed. You know, I, I didn't say you never have any of them on, but it, it always seems that there's the the more liberal view, which. Well, we've had people that we've had. I agree with. We've had a lot of people from the National Review, people like David French. I mean, people who don't necessarily support Trump, but are conservative writers, good, strong conservative writers. I mean, you know, right now, I don't really need to have a conservative on to criticize the Democratic president because there isn't one. Right now, basically, there's one group of people who are in power right now who are handling Supreme Court appointments and foreign policy and economic policy and immigration policy who are in need of scrutiny. Um, and it's Trump and his minions. And I, like, I'm not sure what would be the point. No, I mean, we do. We have had Milo Yiannopoulos on. We have had Jordan Peterson on. We have plenty of these kinds of people. But, you know, in a general way, what sort of mission would I be accomplishing if I made sure I had people on who thought that shutting down the government in order to build uh, or, or to force the, the building of a wall at the border was a really good idea? And, I mean, like what sort of watchdog role would I, you know, or the new threat to close the border or the, you know, pick something like what would that really accomplish? Um, I, I can promise you the next time there's a Democratic president, um, I will have lots of people on to criticize what that president does, because I think that's a big part of what the media does is to provide checks and balances. But yeah, I, I don't worry about that too much. <laughs> uh, I don't. I think basically we're doing what our job is. You know, maybe we could tilt it a tiny bit more to the right, but uh, I think Dave's wrong. Um, all right. Well, listen. Thanks for listening. I wish I'd gotten the other Dave on David, David, whatever his name is. Uh, and we will be back tomorrow with a show that you will find disturbing. I fear. <laughs> <laughs>